Introductory Material of the Invalid's Hymn Book, edited by Harriet Kiernan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Introductory Preface by the Reverend Hugh White, A.M. The Soothing Influence of Sacred Poetry when it breathes the spirit of scriptural piety, has been felt and acknowledged by many a mourner in Zion, whose troubled soul has been tranquilized, and its anguish alleviated by the sweet strains of heavenly consolation, embodied in the beautiful language of hymns, long endeared to the Christian church, as having poured a healing balm into many a bleeding and almost broken heart. But there is one class of sufferers, whose case calls for peculiar tenderness of sympathy and discrimination of judgment in providing a suitable selection of hymns adapted to their peculiar character and circumstances. Whoever has known, by painful experience, or witnessed in the course of affectionate attendance on beloved relatives, the results of long-continued sickness to the invalid, will be best able to appreciate the value of a selection specially designed to meet the peculiar requirements of their case. The bodily languor, which is the almost inevitable consequence of protracted illness, often indisposes the invalid for enjoying a class of hymns, to be found in all general collections, which require a greater energy and vivacity of spirit than sickness, in most cases will allow. Hence arises the necessity of selecting such as are more congenial to a wounded spirit, such as embody the pathetic lamentations of resigned grief, or suggest the cheering motives for Christian consolation. The eye long dimmed by tears, that is too weak to bear the brightness of more triumphant strains, will gaze with gladdened interest on the tenderer images and associations, which harmonize with the feelings of a sorrowful, though unmurmuring, heart. To such a heart, the hymn that pours forth the chastened complainings of a suffering yet submissive spirit, that pleads with almost agonizing earnestness for supporting strength, that expresses the thankful trust of cheerful resignation, or the solemn joy which the prospect of death as the gate of everlasting glory inspires, is inexpressibly sweet and soothing. It finds a responsive echo in the mourner's heart, and enables it to give utterance to its secret griefs and aspirations, in language endeared by the recollection that it has been breathed forth from a heart which has been touched with sorrows like its own. Such was the design of the present little work, which was originally undertaken by one preeminently qualified for the task, from her experience both of the wearisome days and nights appointed for the invalid, and of the rich and precious consolations with which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ abounds one who combined the highest intellectual attainments with the deepest Christian humility, and recommended a life of the most exalted piety and devotedness to a Saviour's service, by the most endearing affectionateness of disposition and attractiveness of manner, one of whom emphatically it might with truth be said that she adorned in all things the doctrine of God our Saviour. Footnote I gladly embrace this opportunity of confirming the truth of this tribute to the memory of a highly esteemed friend, by the testimony of one whose commendation, more especially when the subject is the excellence of the Christian character, is indeed of peculiar value. 
In a sermon preached on behalf of the Dorset Institution, one of the most valuable institutions in this metropolis, one in whose welfare the editor of the Invalid's Hymn Book felt the deepest interest, the Reverend H. Woodward, rector of Feathered, when speaking of the loss sustained by this institution in her death, mentions her as one whose tender offices and labors of love can never be forgotten, and were above all praise. Many, he adds, in this assembly, can bear witness to this truth. Nay, do I not address some who, when they call to mind her high endowments, her deep humility, the consistent piety of her life, and the triumphs of her death, would be inclined to say that, take her for all in all, they shall not look upon her like again. See Sermons and Lectures on Ruth, by the Rev. H. Woodward, 17th Sermon, where, with the most persuasive eloquence, this distinguished minister pleads the cause of an institution, peculiarly entitled to the warm approval and liberal support of every real Christian, who delights to promote the welfare, temporal and eternal, of poor, well-conducted young females, numbers of whom it has preserved from the path of the destroyer, supported by the encouragement of industrious habits and instructed in the knowledge of a Saviour's love. End of footnote. By her the very valuable address to the invalid, prefixed to the original work, was written, which, in clear and impressive language, while it displays the glory of the cross and the all-sufficiency of the sacrifice there offered up, sets forth the source from which she derived at once all the loveliness of her character and all the treasures of spiritual comfort, peace, and joy which enriched her soul. Even Christ crucified, the sinner's only hope and refuge from eternal wrath, Jehovah, our righteousness, the believer's only title to eternal glory. In this address, as well as in the hymns she selected, it is her chief end, to use the beautiful language of the great and good Bishop Reynolds, to convince of the all-sufficient righteousness and unsearchable riches of Christ, the excellency of his knowledge, the immeasurableness of his love, the preciousness of his promises, the fellowship of his sufferings, the power of his resurrection, the beauties of his holiness, the easiness of his yoke, the sweetness of his peace, the joy of his salvation, the hope of his glory. And thus, to glorify God our Saviour in the heart, and to render him amiable and precious in the eyes of his people, to lead them to him as a sanctuary to protect them, a propitiation to reconcile them, a treasure to enrich them, a physician to heal them, an advocate to present them and their services to God, as wisdom to counsel them, as righteousness to justify them, as sanctification to renew, as redemption to save. The arrangement of these hymns, in which, as the good bishop wished of every sermon, it was her desire that Christ should shine in the bosom of every hymn, soothed and solaced many a weary hour during her last illness and accordingly this hymn-book has been received and prized as a precious legacy of Christian love by the many, many friends to whom she was so deservedly dear, and abundantly accompanied, there is every reason to believe, in its extensive circulation, by the blessing of him to whose glory it was consecrated, as the last labor of love of a life consistently devoted to his service, the last thank-offering of a grateful heart, desirous, even after death, 
to be instrumental in promoting a beloved Saviour's glory. The appendix to the first edition was written expressly for the work by a beloved Christian friend of the original editor, of whom, as she is still living, I will not say what the high Christian esteem I entertain for her would prompt. But of the hymns I may speak, and they appear to me, some of them especially, as preeminently fitted to whisper comfort to those that mourn, by the bright prospects of the glory of the heavenly inheritance which they unfold, and the endearing view which they most touchingly express of the loving kindness manifested in every afflictive appointment of a Saviour's hand. Thus, like the bird, whose outspread wings can tranquilize the troubled surface of the stormy waves, do these hymns diffuse over the tempest-tossed soul a deep and holy calm, even that peace of God which passeth all understanding. To those, then, who, under the pressure of bodily pain and weakness, desire to experience the refreshing influence of Christian comfort, clothed in the attractive garb of sacred song, or to those who wish to present to beloved relatives or friends, confined to the bed of suffering, or the chamber of sickness, such a token of sympathy, and such a minister of consolation, I would most affectionately and cordially recommend this invalid's hymn-book. It is one which, if prayerfully used, cannot, I feel confident, fail of imparting spiritual comfort to the mourner, who has been taught to view every afflictive dispensation in that light, which turns them all into precious mercies, even the light of a Saviour's love. I trust that I shall not be deemed egotistical or presumptuous if I add that I can put forward this recommendation as the result of my own experience, to which I only advert because it may in some measure explain why I have complied with the request of the much-valued editor to prefix a few introductory remarks to this new edition of this excellent work. A request, my compliance with which, when regarded as the expression of gratitude for the comfort which I have myself derived from the perusal, more especially of some of the hymns in the appendix to the first edition, will be, I trust, rescued from the charge of presumption, as if I conceive that a work so well known, and so deservedly valued, stood in need of any recommendation of mine. The additions and alterations made in the arrangement of the present, second edition will, I conceive, materially enhance the value of the book, as suitable hymns are now provided for a class, and that a numerous one, not particularly considered in the former. The reflecting, awakened, and inquiring invalid, to whom the language of the confirmed believer cannot be intelligible, and consequently cannot be profitable. To them these hymns may be blessed, as a means of making their sickness instrumental in promoting their everlasting welfare, by leading them to self-examination, and thus to a discovery of their own sinfulness, and of their consequent need of an almighty and all-sufficient Saviour, and to a living faith in his most precious blood, which cleanseth from all sin, and redeemeth from all condemnation. While by the classification of the hymns under suitable heads, there is an increased facility of selecting such as are most congenial to the Christian invalid's circumstances, in all that variety and vicissitude of spiritual experience, from the depths of depression to the heights of holy triumph, which the history of God's dealings with his dear children, in the time of sickness and suffering, uniformly supplies. 
There has been a peculiar value, recently stamped on this collection of hymns, to which the supplementary hymns, adapted to peculiar interesting circumstances in an invalid's history, form a most valuable addition. Impregnated as this collection, and the sweet supplement now attached to it, are, with the very essence of evangelical truth, and displaying so fully the grace and glory of a crucified Saviour. This value has arisen from the rise and spread, in the bosom of our own scriptural church, of a system of theology which, more especially by reserve in proclaiming the doctrine of the atonement, in direct opposition both to our Saviour's express command, Mark 16, 15, and the Apostles' uniform example, 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 2, 2, is fearfully calculated to obscure that grace and that glory, while robbing the sinner of the peace and comfort which the cross alone can afford, and to insinuate into the hearts of its deluded votaries the destructive influences of the worst errors of popery, especially in the matter of a sinner's justification, with which the theology of the Tractarian school is essentially identified. As this pestilential heresy is infecting the literature, and may soon tinge the sacred poetry of our day, such a collection of hymns as this volume contains should be regarded by all who know the value of the truth as it is in Jesus as a treasure of peculiar preciousness. Footnote. I would most earnestly recommend the attentive perusal of Bickersteth's Divine Warning to the Church, last edition enlarged, as containing the most important admonitions, adapted to the peculiar circumstances of the Church of Christ, in the present eventful crisis of its history. Also, Daubigny's Geneva and Oxford, Good's Divine Rule of Faith and Practice, and Case as it is, McIlwain's Oxford Divinity, Mark's Danger and Duty, McNeil's Church Extension and Church Unity, and Beamish's Letters to Dr. Pusey. End of footnote. Here, as in the Word of God, shines forth in full luster that glorious truth which is the very sum and center of the whole system of evangelical religion, and by obscuring which, the late Oxford edition of Popery bears the brand of Antichrist stamped on it, marking it as an apostasy from the profession of the pure, unadulterated gospel of the grace of God. For in these hymns, the cross, which Tractarianism would keep in the background, is continually held up to view, as the sinner's only ground of trust, as the believer's only adequate motive for a life of holiness and devotedness. And assuredly, if there be anything in Revelation as certain as the explicit declaration of a God of truth can make it, it is that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth and that just in proportion as this glorious manifestation of divine love is displayed in all its fullness, will the Saviour's expectation which he announced in those memorable words, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, be fulfilled. Yes, it is the stupendous display of the love of God, exhibited on the cross. It is the announcement that God so loved us, as not to spare even his own Son, but to give him up for our sakes to the death of that cross. It is this which, when cordially believed, through the power of the Holy Spirit, changes the natural enmity of the human heart against God into feelings of devout adoration 
and confiding and grateful affection. It is this which weans from the love of sin and attracts to the love of holiness, while it leads the Christian to look and to long for the glorious appearing of the great God our Saviour, and to live in a state of habitual preparedness for that event, so full of triumph to Christ and his church. It is this which at once speaks peace to the conscience, and imparts purity to the heart, while it constrains the believer to consecrate all he has, and all he is, as a thank-offering to the God of his salvation. How fearfully, then, does that system, which would keep this glorious revelation of God's love in reserve, bear stamped on it the brand of Antichrist? And how should we value a production like these hymns, in which it is displayed in all its glory? Such being my estimate of this hymn-book, and such the motives which have influenced me in bearing my humble testimony on its behalf, I cannot conclude, without expressing my earnest hope and prayer, that it may be abundantly accompanied by the divine blessing, and made by him, who is the fountain of all divine comfort, even God, the Holy Ghost, a channel for conveying a large supply of his precious consolations into the heart of every invalid into whose hands it may come. May he, by his power, render it instrumental in enabling those who may peruse it, if it find them ignorant of a Saviour's preciousness, to regard and to receive him as the pearl of great price, and to cast themselves on his infinite mercies and merits, to be washed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness, that so the chamber of sickness may be endeared and hallowed to their hearts, as the place where first they learned the worth of their own souls, and the value of him who redeemed them with his blood. Where first they felt the divinely implanted love of him who so loved us, and laid down his life for us on the cross. And where first they turned their faces Zionwards, and entered on that life of grace on earth, which will issue in the life of eternal glory in heaven. And may the Holy Spirit bless this book, to all the children of God who may peruse it, as a means of enabling them, in all time of their tribulation, to cleave more closely to him who so loved them, as not even to spare his own son, but to give him as a propitiation for their sins. To read more clearly the stamp of a Saviour's love impressed on their every trial. To reflect more brightly, as purified in the furnace of affliction, his image in the beauty of holiness. To drink more deeply into his meek, resigned, and patient spirit, under every afflictive dispensation. To cultivate more closely devout communion with him, as the sweetest solace of their every sorrow. To prize more highly that treasury of consolation, the word of God, and extract from its precious promises more of their healing and sanctifying power. To disentangle their affections from earth and all its perishable vanities, and concentrate them with more undivided devotedness upon heaven and all its unfading glories and to embrace with more grateful ardor the invaluable opportunity of glorifying him who died for them, by the exhibition of cheerful submission and triumphant hope, which the chamber of sickness supplies. That so the attitude of their spirits may abidingly be that which, especially in these days of portentous events, so symptomatic of some rapidly approaching crisis in the history of the Church of Christ, should characterize every true believer looking and longing for the coming of the day of the Lord, and the glorious appearing of the great God our Saviour, 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and when it shall be fully seen how the believer's light affliction, which was but for a moment, has worked out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Then shall the trial of his faith, being much more precious than that of gold which perisheth, though it be tried with fire, be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. For then shall all those who have come out of that great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb appear before the throne, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, and shall cast their blood-bought crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. Blessing, honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, for ever and ever. H. W. Addendum. The suitableness of hymns, such as this volume contains, to seasons of sorrow, is affectingly proved by a reference to that solemn occasion recorded in Matthew twenty-six thirty and the value of such a collection is still further established by the consideration that it supplies to the Christian invalid a delightful substitute in the sick-room for that participation in singing the praises of God in family worship, from which sickness often excludes him, and which ought ever to be combined with prayer and the reading of the word of God, in the devotions of the family and social circle, as it tends so powerfully, when the heart speaks in the language of the lips, to impart to them a spirit of sacred cheerfulness and holy joy, even joy in the Holy Ghost. H. W. Advertisement to the Second Edition It has been thought advisable to classify the hymns in the present edition in order that the invalid, or those around him, may be able to turn to such as are best suited to his state of mind. The hymns added as an appendix in the first edition will now be found interspersed with the rest, under their respective heads, with an edition of fifty hymns never before published. March 4th, 1841 Advertisement to Third Edition Twelve hymns are appended as a supplement to this edition. Footnote. Two editions, the fourth and present, of this work have since been published. End of footnote suited to particular occasions and circumstances of the invalid. June, 1843 Address to the Invalid The following selection of hymns has been made for the use of persons in great bodily weakness. At such a period, when it may often be truly said, the grasshopper is a burden, the variety of a large collection becomes wearisome, and the small print and weight of the volume inconvenient. The present object is to afford, in large print, a few hymns which seem most likely to cheer and animate the weak, and to strengthen the faith and clear the view of that glorious doctrine of the atonement, which alone can give peace to the guilty conscience, and cause a sinner to triumph in Christ as the Lord Jehovah, in whom he has both righteousness and strength. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And when flesh and heart fail, to enable him to say, he is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Then it is that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, into which the righteous, or justified, enters and is safe. And they that know this name 
will put their trust in it, and set it up for their banner. And when the sense of redeeming love and undeserved mercy causes such to cry out, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? He can only say with David, I will take the cup of salvation, and will call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 116, 10, Acts 2, 21 The Lord God has himself condescended to explain the meaning of his own glorious name, so that no poor, helpless, dying sinner need be at a loss to understand that there is forgiveness with him, and peace and everlasting security to all who take shelter in his name. In this way, the wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err. It is recorded in the thirty-third and thirty-fourth chapters of Exodus that when Moses said to the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory, the Lord answered, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And it shall come to pass, that when my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, etc. Footnote, verse 7th. In the Hebrew, the word translated iniquity signifies sins willfully committed. That translated transgression signifies sins of omission, and that translated sin signifies sins through error or ignorance. Thus, provision is made for the pardon of all manner of sin. End of footnote. In the face of Jesus Christ is the glory of God manifested. In him is all the goodness of Jehovah displayed. He is the rock, his work is perfect. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, in whom all the promises of God are yea and amen, in whom mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The severity of God's justice and holiness must be maintained inviolate, as well as his other attributes, for he is glorious in holiness. Sin must not escape unpunished. The sinner could not live in his sight. He would by no means clear the guilty and the iniquity of the Father must have rested on him and on his children from generation to generation, had not Christ interposed. The angel of the covenant, of whom God said, My name is in him. He undertook to fulfill all the demands of justice, and of the holy, broken law, and to suffer in his own person all the punishment. He who is over all, God, blessed forevermore, took upon him the nature of sinful man, and made his soul an offering for sin. And here the love of God to a sinful world is manifest. He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He freely gave his beloved Son, 
in whom he is well pleased, and not only gave him, but it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And wherefore? He was bruised for our iniquities, he was wounded for our transgressions, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. By the actual suffering of the Son of God, and the transfer of guilt to him who, standing in the stead of the guilty, suffered the punishment which justice must have inflicted, every sinner who believes is cleared, while the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, the truth of Jehovah, is maintained inviolate. Christ hath delivered us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He hath said, Deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. The debt has been paid. The prisoner is set at liberty, the curse has been removed, the blessing has been given. Justice is fully satisfied, mercy is triumphant. Love reigns, and the Lord of Peace, the Holy Comforter, descends from above to abide with the purchased possession, as the earnest and pledge of eternal redemption. Now the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is evident that the whole work of a sinner's salvation and redemption is of God. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, might be brought to bear upon this subject, but this is not the place for quotations. All that is intended is to remind the invalid that when Christ died on the cross and cried, It is finished, nothing remained to be done for his justification. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Him that cometh to me, said Christ, I will in no wise cast out. Whosoever will, let him come, and take of the water of life freely. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. This is the will of him that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is worthy to be remarked that in this memorable conversation with his disciples, recorded in John 6, the Lord Jesus confirmed this assurance of life everlasting to everyone that should believe on him nine times. At verses 39, 40, 44, 47, 50, 51, 54, 57, 58. As if he said, I will make it impossible for you hereafter to doubt or to be afraid. I am the resurrection and the life, and because I live, ye shall live also. Peter well understood him when he said, verse 68, Lord, to whom should we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And after the resurrection of the Lord, when the angel came and opened the prison doors, Acts 5.20, and brought the apostles forth, he said to them, Go stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. Accordingly, Peter preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted to be a prince and a saviour, to give repentance unto Israel and forgiveness of sins. Is any invalid who reads this oppressed under a sense of unworthiness and sin? Let but this glorious gospel, with all its freeness and fullness, be received 
and peace and consolation and joy, light and salvation, will be poured into his soul, and cause every desponding fear to give way. And with Peter, he will be able to say, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again, John 3, 7, to a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. In these verses, the experience of every true believer, more or less, is described, and the hymns are selected to exhibit the same, the love, joy, peace, confidence, assurance, the self-loathing and resignation to the divine will, the desire that Christ may be glorified by him, whether by life or by death, all springing from the same blessed source and almighty agency set forth in the second verse of the same chapter. 1 Peter 1, 2 Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. May the glorious truth of the everlasting gospel be thus felt, understood, and acknowledged by every invalid who reads these lines. May the love of God the Father, who sent his Son to die for the ungodly, be shed abroad in their hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost. May the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, with mercy and peace be multiplied to them. May they be encouraged by his gracious invitation to go boldly to the throne of grace, where he is our advocate with the Father, and is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And may the animating, comforting, directing, strengthening, and refreshing influences of the Eternal Spirit, God the Holy Ghost, be poured forth abundantly upon them. Amen. H. K. Introductory Lines In thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me, and trembling. Job 4, 13, 14 Sometimes amid the hurry, toil, and strife, the claims, the urgencies, the whirl of life, the soul, perhaps in silence of the night, has flashes, transient intervals of light, when things to come, without a shade of doubt, in terrible reality stand out. These lucid moments suddenly present a glance of truth, as though the heavens were rent, and through the chasm of pure celestial light the future breaks upon the startled sight. Life's vain pursuits and time's advancing pace 
appears with deathbed clearness face to face, and immortality's expanse sublime in just proportion to the speck of time, while death, uprising from the silent shades, shows his dark outline ere the vision fades. In strong relief against the blazing sky appears the shadow as it passes by, and though o'erwhelming to the dazzled brain, these are the moments when the mind is sane. For then a hope of heaven, a saviour's cross, seem what they are, and all things else but loss. O oh, to be ready, ready for that day, would we not give earth's fairest toys away? Alas, how soon its interests cloud the view, rush in and plunge us in the world anew. Jane Taylor End of Introductory Material <laughs>